You're listening to Yap, Young and Profiting Podcast, a place where you can listen, learn, and profit. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Hala Taha, and on Young and Profiting Podcast, we investigate a new topic each week and interview some of the brightest minds in the world. My goal is to turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your everyday life, no matter your age, profession, or industry. There's no fluff on this podcast, and that's on purpose. I'm here to uncover value from my guests by doing the proper research and asking the right questions. If you're new to the show, we've chatted with the likes of ex-FBI agents, real estate moguls, self-made billionaires, CEOs, and best-selling authors. Our subject matter ranges from enhancing productivity, how to gain influence, the art of entrepreneurship, and more. If you're smart and like to continually improve yourself, hit the subscribe button because you'll love it here at Young and Profiting Podcast. This week on Yap, we're chatting with Stephen Kotler. Stephen is a best-selling author, award-winning journalist, and the executive director of the Flow Research Collective, whose mission is to understand the science behind ultimate human performance. This is Stephen's second time on Yap. He first joined us back in episode number 32, Flow Into the Future, and we couldn't be more excited to have him back on for another awesome conversation. Steve is one of the world's leading experts on human performance. While he's best known for his work on flow, he also writes about the use of other unique states of consciousness in order to optimize performance. He's written nine best-selling books and is the co-host of Flow Research Collective Radio, a top 10 iTunes science podcast. In today's episode, we discuss Stephen's new book, The Art of Impossible, and take a deep dive into its lessons, some of which include the definition of impossible, intrinsic versus extrinsic motivation, and the core pillars of peak performance. We'll also talk about the importance of learning, why to-do lists are a must, and why reading books is the best return on investment for your brain. If you want guidance on how to create clear goals and reach your optimal performance in life, keep on listening. Hey, Stephen, welcome back to Young and Profiting Podcast. Super excited to have you here today. It's good to be with you again. I love it when you're on the show. My listeners love it when you're on the show. You were actually with us back in episode number 32. We talked about flow. That's called Flow into the Future. We also had you on a Clubhouse episode pretty recently, about two months ago, also talking about flow. So for anybody who missed it, why don't we start off with a definition of flow? And then if anybody wants to go really deep, we've got two great episodes on that topic because today I want to focus on your new book, The Art of Impossible. So why don't we start off with a definition of flow? Perfect. Scientists define flow as an optimal state of consciousness, state of consciousness where we feel our best and we perform our best. More specifically, it refers to any of those moments of rapt attention, total absorption. You get so focused on what you're doing, so focused on the task at hand, everything else just starts to disappear. Action and awareness are going to start to merge. Your sense of self, self-consciousness, the voice in your head are going to diminish. Time's going to pass strangely. It's going to speed up. Five hours will go by in like five seconds. Or it'll slow down. You're going to freeze frame effect. I mean, anybody has been in a car crash. And throughout all aspects of performance, both mental and physical, go through the roof. So that's flow in a nutshell. You may call it being in the zone or runner's high or being unconscious. The synonyms are sort of endless. Flow is a scientific term. So we'll stick with that. 
Amazing. Amazing. And so from my understanding, your new book, The Art of Impossible, was really a continuation of your research on works like The Rise of Superman. So talk to us about how The Art of Impossible is an extension of that research and what's different about that book than the previous ones. So most of the previous books where I've written about flow, um, first of all, I've, they've, they've, I've looked at flow from a lot of different aspects. West of Jesus looks at the relationship between sort of flow and mystical experiences. Stealing Fire looks at flow and its relationship to other altered states of consciousness, et cetera, et cetera. I've done a bunch of that. This is the first time I've written a how-to book. So it's the first playbook I've ever written. But more importantly, and sort of this is how it builds, and I got a slightly longer answer. Back in the 1990s, when people first started trying to train other people in flow, they were depending on psychology. We had psychological definitions of flow. We had a psychological understanding of it. And as a general rule, people were lousy using what we knew psychologically to train flow. Over the past 10 to 15 years, that's changed because we've now started to rely on neurobiology, right? Psychology is essentially mechanism or a metaphor, neurology and neuroscience is, is mechanism. It's, you know, how the brain works and using mechanism to train up flow. Uh, for example, in my organization, we train about a thousand people a month. We measure flow pre and post using the standard psychometric instruments. We'll see about a 70 to 80% increase in flow. And we... I've seen that for a while, six, seven, eight years where, oh, wow, this stuff is really trainable. What started to happen, though, early on, and this is where Art of Impossible comes in, is we saw we could produce, using kind of the neuroscience of how flow works in the brain, this spectacular surge in flow, which is great. Unbelievable surges in optimal performance, but it wasn't stable. Like people would go way up, 70% boost in flow, and then they come crashing back down. And flow... One of its core characteristics, it's, it's euphoric, it's joyous, it's, it's you know, our favorite state on earth, and it's massively addictive. So when you start producing a really addictive state in people's lives, it gives them big performance, and suddenly it goes away. They're pissed. And so the question was, well, what's going on? What are we missing? And I started to realize it wasn't always the case that they returned to baseline. Certain populations, we do a lot of work or have done a lot of work over the years with U.S. Special Forces, Navy SEALs, Army Rangers, those, and professional athletes. They didn't return to baseline. A lot of other people did, but the people, who, and I started looking at, well, what was missing? And we realized peak performance is more than just flow. It is nothing more or less than getting our biology to work for us rather than against us. That biology is actually four things. There's a set of skills under the heading of motivation. There's another set of skills under the heading of learning, set of skills under the heading of creativity, and finally flow. And when you think about peak performance challenges, think about it that motivation is what gets you into the game. Learning allows you to continue to play. Creativity is how you steer, and flow is how you amplify the results. That's the shorthand version of what that quartet of skills looks like. We started to realize that if we training up flow wasn't enough, you could massively amplify the amount of flow in your life. But unless you trained up motivation, learning, and creativity as well, it wasn't stable. It was like that we had a Model T and we souped up the engine with something the Model T could go 200 miles an hour, but it still had those skinny ass tires and that old frame and it would just explode. And that's essentially what was happening. So in 
Art Impossible, it's the full suite of peak performance tools. It's motivation into learning, into creativity, into flow as a sort of how-to. This is kind of the art of peak performance. So that's what's different. There's some flow, and it's the first how-to I've ever written. One more flow in your life. This is the first time I've ever blueprinted it out. And in a sense, it's the textbook with which we use to train our clients as well, right? It's the, it's the foundational ideas that we build on with our clients. Amazing. I think it's super useful. I personally love the book. And that's how we're going to break down this interview. We're going to go over it in four parts. So we're going to start with motivation, then learning, then creativity and flow. So we will get into all of those. Uh, Let's start off with the definition of impossible. From my understanding, there's a lowercase i and an uppercase i. Talk to us about that. I think it will set some good ground for our listeners. (laughs) I spent my career studying people who have accomplished capital I impossible, right? How do we know peak performance is motivation, learn and create, right? That's, it came out of 30 years of studying people who had accomplished what I call capital I impossible, which the standard definition, that which has never been done, that which we don't believe can be done. But the book is really meant to be utilized by anybody interested in small I impossible, what I call small I impossible. And a a small I impossible is all those things that we think are impossible for ourselves. And really simple example that I give in the book from my own life, I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio in the 70s. It's a blue collar steel mill town. And I wanted to be a writer from the time I was a kid. I didn't know any writers. I didn't know how you became a writer. There was no books. There was no internet. There was nobody to ask. It was a small I impossible because There was no clear path from where I was and where I wanted to go. And statistically, lousy odds of success. Other examples of small I impossible, rising out of poverty, overcoming trauma, becoming a successful artist or entrepreneur. Those are all small I impossibles. No clear path from A to B, bet poor odds of success. There are more and more. The cool thing is this. Because peak performance is nothing more than getting our biology to work for us rather than against us, the same biology that gets you to capital I impossible is the same biology that gets you to small I impossible. And if you're listening to me talking, you're like, dude, shut up, small I impossible, big I impossible. I want to get through like Tuesday. Help me get through Tuesday. Well, it turns out that the same biology isn't at play. If you want to get through Tuesday, you want to go after small I impossible, you want to go after capital I impossible. The toolkit is the same because there's just our biology. That's what we're working with. Got it. So basically, you're saying the formula works, whether it's something that seems like a really impossible goal for humans in general, or whether it's just something personally that you're struggling with to believe that you're capable of. I wrote it in a sense because half my books are on technology and I write about people doing impossible things with technology. And a lot of the impossible things people do with technology are of the save the world variety, right? They're, they're going after grand challenges, energy scarcity, poverty, water shortages, stuff that we have to fix. Things that, that have literally never been done before. Things that have never been done before. And I've written books about people using technology to accomplish these things. And, you know, I always say that in, in my books, I feature people, right? And But for every hundred people who make it into the book, there's like 10,000 who almost made it into the book and would had a world-changing technology and didn't get there. And usually when you look under the what 
went wrong, it's very rarely the technology, the actual idea, the thing that could change the world. It's the people. It's people tripping over themselves that tends to block most of this stuff that we really desperately need. And that to me is like small eye stuff. So yes, it's useful across the board. I wrote it for people aiming at small eye impossible because I think that's the stuff that has to get done to fight global warming, to fight species die off, to, you know, those kinds of issues that I care deeply about. Yeah, 100%. Okay, so motivation, the first pillar. Why does motivation even matter? And how does it relate to things like focus and action? Great questions. I'll try to go quickly, but let's sort of start. What motivation is defined, what does scientists mean? It's defined as the energy for action, right? That's literally the definition of motivation. When psychologists use the term motivation, it's a catch-all for four different categories of skill sets. There's extrinsic motivation. This is stuff in the world we're going to work hard to get. Money, sex, fame, right? Intrinsic motivation. This is, you know, there's tons of different intrinsic motivators, but these are the things that drive us from the inside. Curiosity, passion, purpose, autonomy, the desire to drive our own bus, uh, mastery, the desire to uh, get really great at the things we do. These are all really powerful intrinsic motivators, and I just named the big five that we're going to focus on. There's also goal setting. There's three tiers of goals in there. And finally, there's six levels of grit skills. There's six kinds of different grit skills. All that gets folded under this heading motivation. Quite simply, if you're interested in peak performance, if you're interested in performance, if you're interested in anything, motivation gets you into the game. There's no, you can't start without the energy to start. And what the science shows about motivation is it's actually meant to be cultivated in a specific order. Like all those component parts, they start at one place and they go to another place. This is, and it starts with extrinsic motivation, goes to intrinsic, goes to goals and goes to grit. And we can talk more about that in a second. But the point isn't that like you can go out of order. It's just that if you go in order, this is the way the system from a biological perspective sort of evolved to evolve. And it just makes it easier. You just get farther faster if you sort of do it in line. But it, pretty clear that you have to start if you're trying to amplify motivation if you're interested in peak performance motivation is where you got to start if you want to increase motivation you actually have to start with extrinsic motivation you have to start with stuff in the real world the data is pretty clear uh daniel kahneman did a the nobel laureate did a lot of this research it's not my work but what the studies have shown is that we have to make enough money for like kind of like basic income and a little leftover for fun before we can even consider anything else and the reason is Fear can block peak performance. It blocks flow, it blocks peak performance, and it's too big of a detriment if you have food anxiety. How am I going to feed myself? How am I going to feed my children? If you don't know where you're living, if you have rent anxiety, if you, you can't win. You have to solve that problem first, then you go face all the other peak performance challenges. You don't need a lot of money. It's just literally enough to take care of my bills and a little leftover for fun. That's all you need. But if you're not there, it's really hard to do the other stuff. It's just, there's just too much fear. It's going to get in the way of too many things. So start with the extrinsic. What the research shows is, okay, I've got extrinsic. I want more motivation, right? And what the studies show is that you now want to reach for intrinsic motivation. If you want really big boosts in productivity, yeah, we'll still keep wanting things in the real world. It doesn't mean we stop wanting money, sex, fame, right? Of course, that stuff doesn't go away. But if you're really interested in peak performance and amplifying productivity and motivation, 
intrinsic is the way to go. And as I said, there's five big ones and they design work in an order. So it starts with curiosity. Curiosity is the most basic intrinsic motivator. Curiosity is sort of designed to be built into passion, which is designed to be built into purpose. I want to talk about the question you asked, which is what is motivation good for? What do we care about it? And what does it have to do with focus and attention? And this is that answer. So curiosity, passion, purpose, autonomy, and mastery, these are all intrinsic motivators. What's the big deal? People make a really big deal in the world about passion and purpose and things like that. And we hear a lot about them. And that may have a lot more to do with like virtue signaling than anything. Like from a peak performance perspective, this stuff is very selfish, actually. And the reason is simply this. When Think about curiosity. What do we get when we're curious about something? When you're interested in something, you pay attention to it automatically. You don't have to work hard. Curiosity, same thing with passion. You pay, think about falling in love. That's passion. How much the attention you pay to the other person, right? Ton of stuff. Purpose is more of the same, et cetera, et cetera. Focus for free is a really big deal. The brain is a huge energy hog. It uses 25% of our energy at rest. So we're not even trying to do work yet, just at rest. That's like one quarter of everything you eat goes to run the tiny two, two ounce thing in your head. That's just, you know, a tiny little bit of your body mass. So huge energy hog and passion is more focused, purpose is more and so forth. We get other things, but at a really basic level, that's the link. And each one of these is designed to be built into another. You know, think about it. Curiosity builds into passion. Passion is, once we have a passion, we couple that passion to a cause greater than ourselves. That's essentially the formula for purpose. Once you have purpose, the system wants the freedom to pursue that purpose. So autonomy becomes the next motivator that starts to matter. And finally, once you have the freedom to pursue your purpose, you want the skills to pursue it well right? So that's where mastery comes into play. And so that's sort of the stack of intrinsic motivators. If you can get them properly stacked and all aligned and pointed in the same direction, which is what kind of art and possible teaches you how to do in a sense, then you're, you're bringing all your fuel sources to every problem you encounter. And that's the really big deal. If you think about an athlete, you know, when an athlete goes into a game, They got enough sleep the night before because rest matters. They had their proteins and their carbs and their hydration and their fats, right? Everything was, they wanted all the possible fuel sources so they could be at the rest. But the same thing with mental fuel sources, right? With motivation. That's why you want all of your motivators pointed in the same direction because it's the same thing. So you're stacking and aligning motivators. You can tap every possible fuel source for, for the simple reason that, Peak performance, going after impossible goals, is hard. It's unpleasant. It's difficult. And if you don't have all your intrinsic motivators pointing the same way, the only tool you're going to ever have to reach for is grit. Oh, this sucks. I got to tough it out. And this sucks. I got to tough it out is not going to get you. are going to get burned out. You won't get, you can't. This sucks. I'm going to tough it out your way to the impossible. It's too far. It's too hard. You have to have all these other fuel sources. I always tell people that grit, however useful it is, is the last tool that peak performers reach for, not the first tool. And I think in a lot of society, we have it backwards, um, especially younger generation, because they're tougher, they're resilient. You can stay up all night like a college teaches you to do that. Being a young, right, all the stuff you sort of learn how to do says just reach for grit, reach for grit because you're tough enough, you can handle it. 
what you start to figure out pretty quickly is, holy crap, this is lousy. Like, I can't do this. I'm going to end up burned out because there's only so much grit to go around. And even if you train up all six levels of grit and get them expert level, it's still there's not enough of a fuel. There's not enough energy there. You have to reach for all the other motivators first. And then grit is your last resort. Okay. So let me try to recap this. And I want to stay on motivation for a little while because there's a lot to break down in just this one bit. Okay. So if I have this correct, it feels like motivation gives you this free energy source. It's like downstream. It's effortless. It kind of helps you get you going. Like you said, it's the first step. You have to make sure that you have your extrinsic motivation satisfied first. So your basic needs, paying rent, being able to eat, getting food on the table. That needs to happen first before you can be ready to start tackling your intrinsic values. And then there's five main ones. What are the five again? Curiosity, passion, purpose, autonomy, and mastery. Okay. Now, extrinsic values is kind of like the carrot and the stick. Why is it that the carrot starts to become not enough? Like, why is it that extrinsic runs out and is kind of short-lived while intrinsic is a long-term way to stay motivated? That is a really good question. Do we know 100%? I don't know if we know 100%, but what the science seems to show is you have to remember that we evolved to say safe and secure, right? And safe and secure once basic needs are, are met, you can get more of them in a certain way, but it, it can end up as a zero-sum game. But if you can follow curiosity, you can follow passion, you can follow purpose, it leads to possibly more safety, more security, more stuff. It seems to unlock the adjacent possible in a sense. So that seems to be, from a really basic evolutionary standpoint, some of the thinking around the answer to that question, but I think the real answer is we don't entirely know. Other than this just seems to be how we're hardwired and it shows up again and again and again. Uh, in fact, uh, Dan Pink's book, Drive, covers a lot of the kind of foundational research where economists sort of figured this out. You know, there are tons of different studies on it. We, uh, from a neuroscience perspective, you see slightly different things. So I'll give you one example. Autonomy. Turns out that autonomy and attention in the brain are coupled systems. So you cannot pay complete attention to something. And attention drives all performance, right? It's the gateway into anything we're going to do. You can't pay attention to it. You can't do it. And you can't give something your undivided attention if you're not, you're not doing it by choice, if you don't want to do it. So even if you have to do something that you hate, you need to, if you, to maximize motivation and productivity, you want to reframe it. So I used to, as a journalist, have to write stories, you know, especially when I was coming up and I was younger, that I wasn't thrilled about. But I was, I was right, I was paying bills. I had to, sometimes I would write stories about stuff I was super interested in, sometimes not as interested, but I would always find something in the story or a way to write the story, right? Like maybe I would do things like, I remember writing a story about data caves for Wired. Was I a little interested in data caves, but I didn't really care. But I tried to write it in the style of Charles Dickens and get it past the Wired censors so they wouldn't notice that I was trying to learn. Because that made this thing that I didn't want to do, wasn't motivated, into a, I reframed it. I was like, well, I don't want to write about data caves. But trying to write like Charles Dickens writing about data caves and getting it, sneaking into Wired magazine. Now, that's funny. That's just 
playful and curious. And, you know, I'll do that for a couple of days. Sure. And that's one way to think about that one. So that another, you know, a neurobiological example. Okay. So there's five intrinsic motivators. Why is it that they have to be in the same order? And why is it that you need all five? Like, why is it that just two or three of them won't work? How are they all kind of interconnected and related? So it's not that two or three won't work. Of course they will. It's that these five, and there are dozens more, right? Spite is an intrinsic motivator. You know, coaches in the NFL use bulletin board material all the time to motivate players. And that's an intrinsic motivator. These five are the biggest ones they produce. When we're talking about motivation, you're talking about neurochemistry. When we do a performance action that kind of furthers our chances of survival, we get rewarded. And that, that reward is, we call that reward motivation. Those rewards come in the form of neurochemicals. Dopamine is the most familiar feel-good reward chemical. And when we're curious, we get a little bit of dopamine and a little bit of norepinephrine, basic motivators. The problem with curiosity is a, it's not powerful enough to sustain us for the long haul. Right. The reason you want all five is because you want as much fuel as you possibly can for the long haul. And these five are the biggest ones, meaning they produce the biggest, most neurochemical reward. The re- why they're designed to one is designed to build into the next for evolutionary reasons. That's a evolutionary biology discussion that we could spend the next hour on. And I'm happy to do it, but it's probably not where you want to go. So I'm going to park that for a second. Think about it this way. Curiosity is a little bit of dopamine and a little bit of norepinephrine. Those are the two feel-good performance-enhancing neurochemicals you get. That's your reward for curiosity, being curious. Passion, which is literally nothing more than the intersection of multiple curiosities. One curiosity just can't sustain you for the long haul. So what is passion? It's where three or four or five of your curiosities meet each other. That's what passion is. So first of all, you can see naturally curiosity is designed to be built into passion because curiosity is baked into the definition of passion. What do you get with passion? much more dopamine and norepinephrine, much more feel-good rewarding neurochemistry. Purpose is the next step in the chain simply because you can't get any more norepinephrine and dopamine. If I turn those knobs up higher above passion, I move you into schizophrenia and mental illness. So you don't want to do that. But what you do want to do is add more feel-good Performance-enhancing neurochemicals to the equation. That means you need pro-social chemicals, the chemical, the neurochemicals that reward our pro-social behavior, right? Procreation is good for the species. It's neurochemically rewarded. Endorphins, serotonin, oxytocin. These are pro-social reward chemicals. They motivate social behavior. Once you have passion, if you can couple it to a cause greater than myself, something that helps other people, something that helps the planet, something that helps animals, plants, it doesn't matter. You start literally getting those pro-social chemicals. Once you have those pro-social chemicals, then autonomy and mastery just fall because once you have purpose, you need the freedom to pursue it and you need the skills to pursue it. So that's why they stack that way. And it's literally just trying to get more neurochemicals to drive you forward. Awesome. So I'm starting to really understand this. And I think my listeners are definitely starting to really understand these five intrinsic motivators. So autonomy, I feel like can be relative. So how much autonomy do we actually need to be in control of our lives or feel like we're in control of our lives? 
It's an interesting question, as I said in, in our impossible. We don't have a, a scientific answer yet. What we have is great case studies. So the first the case studies everybody's familiar with is what Google uses, 20% time. They give their employees 20% to tap autonomy as a motivator. If you're an engineer, you work at Google. If you've worked there for over a year, 20% of your time, you can do whatever you want with as long as it benefits the company. But it's you follow your passion, your own curiosity. And has it worked? 50% of Google's highest revenue projects all emerged out of 20% time. So it worked spectacularly. For the employees, they're motivated. For the company, they got what they wanted. Google didn't invent it. They actually took it from 3M, who's been doing the same thing since the 50s, I want to say, the 60s, with 15% time. So, okay, wait a minute. 3M just figured out 15% time is enough. That's about an afternoon a week to sort of follow your passion or purpose. So that is a rough way to think about it, Patagonia, the outdoor retailer, all routinely sort of tops charts of best places to work in America, and, and employee autonomy is is why one of the big reasons why. And yet, if you work at a Patagonia, they have very limited autonomy. It's just very specific. And there's basically two thing rules of Patagonia. One is employees get to make their own schedule. We'll talk about why that's important in a second. And the second is... Almost everybody works at Patagonia as an action sport athlete. Their company headquarters is right on the Pacific Ocean. And Ivan Chenard, the guy who founded Patagonia, is a surfer. So he has a let my people go surfing rule. They have the autonomy to go surfing. Whenever the waves are breaking, you could be in a meeting, you could be on the phone, you can be on deadline, doesn't matter. You have the freedom to hang out the phone, walk out of the meeting, and go surfing. So that seems weird, but it actually works, and it works for four reasons. That little bit of autonomy they're giving employees for peak performance reasons works for – so schedule control allows you to do two things. We have natural circadian rhythms. I'm an extreme lark. I wake up. I'm wide awake at 4 o'clock in the morning. I'm going to do my best work. My wife's a night owl. She doesn't wake up till 7 o'clock at night. That's when she does her best work. And most of my friends are, are normal people. They wake up and do their best work 8, 9 10 o'clock in the morning, right? They're right in the middle. It's hard to fight your biology. So if you have the freedom to control your schedule, you can start your work day. You want to start beginning your work day with your hardest task when you have maximum energy. So that's a big deal. The other thing about controlling your own schedule is you get to control your sleep schedule. And one of the foundational ideas in peak performance is we need, we humans need seven to eight hours of sleep a night, and it's not really negotiable. They've done study after study after study after study after study, and no, we all need about seven to eight hours of sleep a night. And if you're interested in a high flow lifestyle, you want to maximize flow because it's optimal performance, it's a high energy state. So you really need those seven to eight hours of sleep. So the freedom to control your schedule is the autonomy to get as much sleep as you want and to work in accordance with your circadian rhythms, okay? On the flip side, what do you get from the let my people go surfing thing? Two things. One, foundational peak performance says you got to regulate your nervous system, right? Fear blocks performance, and there are three great ways to regulate, to kind of manage fear. A daily gratitude practice, a daily mindfulness meditation practice, or daily exercise. And exercise is probably the most consistent of those like it will work for everyone all the time the other ones are are effective as well gratitude works doesn't work it's not as effective kind of in terms of how it calms you down as exercise and mindfulness 
is very effective over time. So different tools, but giving employees the freedom to surf is, hey, whenever you want to go exercise, go exercise. So everybody's a lot calmer. Because they're calmer, right, less fear, better performance. The other thing is surfing is a high-flow activity. It's packed with flow triggers, which is stuff we talked about in your previous podcast. So they're giving their employees the freedom to pursue flow in their favorite flow activity, get regular exercise, get as much sleep as you need, and work in accordance with your circadian rhythms. And those four bits of autonomy seem to be enough as a place to start if you're interested. If you've got more freedom, you know, 15% of your time dedicated to kind of your passion and purpose is enough to get started. The thing about it is it's deadly effective over time. Peak performance is compound interest. A little bit today, it's a little bit tomorrow, it's not. So it's 15% of your time every week, but every week. And it's the consistency over months and years that really produces the significant results. So yeah, it's, it's really easy and that actually tends to work against it in the modern world because we like things that are whiz bang and sexy, eh, right? And it works actually very, very fast and probably faster than any of the other shortcuts you're gonna try that aren't gonna get you there and then you're gonna come back and do it this way because this is really the only, there's no other options, these are the only tools there are, but we're gonna keep looking for shortcuts because we're human. Young and profiters, they may call me the podcast princess, but I'm also the LinkedIn queen. I've been a LinkedIn influencer for six years now, and I teach one of the most popular courses about LinkedIn. And I love to teach sales on LinkedIn because when it comes to B2B sales, LinkedIn has got that on lock. LinkedIn is where all the decision makers are hanging out. There are 180 million senior level decision makers on LinkedIn and 10 million C-suite decision makers. These people are on LinkedIn and they're in the mode to buy. They're using LinkedIn for their buying journey to research vendors or sales reps that they might work with, to look up how to solve their problems, to learn from industry thought leaders. They're in the mode to buy, whereas on other platforms, they're in the mode to be entertained. You want to get them in the right mindset. You want to cut through the noise with LinkedIn ads. In fact, 79% of B2B marketers rate LinkedIn as their top channel for paid media. And LinkedIn has the best targeting because they've got all these different inputs. People are putting their resume basically up on there. And so there's so many keywords that they can use to target the right decision makers so they can hear about how you solve their problems. And I've got a special gift for all you young and profiters who wanna try LinkedIn ads. You can get a $100 credit. LinkedIn was super generous. If you want to make B2B marketing everything it can be and get a $100 credit on your next campaign, go to linkedin.com slash yap, Y-A-P. Again, if you want to claim your credit, go to linkedin.com slash yap. Terms and conditions apply. Young and profiters, as you may know, I launched my LinkedIn Secrets Masterclass a little bit over a year ago. It was my first course. And so far, I've generated well over $500,000. And the best part is I didn't have to figure out how to set up my mastermind subscriptions, how to do abandoned cart targeting and all of that tech geeky stuff. I just left that all to Shopify. <laughs> Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. And if you're in that, I need to sell more with less stage. Shopify magic is your AI super powered sidekick ready to whip up captivating content that converts 
And it doesn't matter if you're selling digital products or vegan cosmetics. Shopify helps you sell anything, anywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Stop those online window shoppers in their tracks and turn them into loyal customers with the internet's best converting checkout. I'm talking 36% better on average compared to the other options out there. It's no wonder Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S., including huge global brands like Allbirds and Thrive Cosmetics. It took me a day to set up my Shopify store. I set up chat, took two minutes, and I was done. One month from thinking of the idea to implementation, a year later, I've made half a million dollars on the idea. That's what it takes in 2024, just a good idea. And then utilizing a platform like Shopify that can help you make it a reality. There is no excuse these days. If you've got a good business idea and you think you'll be a good entrepreneur, you don't have to wait any longer. You don't have to be super techie. And you never have to worry about figuring it out on your own. Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash profiting. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash profiting now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash profiting. This episode of Yap is brought to you by Fiverr. The Yap Media team is always working on new projects, whether it be for the podcast or our agency clients. When we're starting a new project, it's always really exciting. We're all ready to get the ball rolling. But really, we found time and time again that finishing is the most difficult part. It's easy to think about new ideas, but when it comes to actually doing all the deliverables and checking them off, it can really dull the sparkle of a new idea, especially when we have so much to do in our day-to-day. Extra help is always needed when it comes to completing an important project. And that's where Fiverr Business comes in. Fiverr Business puts hundreds of expert freelancers all in one place for your convenience. Every expert comes with everything you need to seamlessly integrate them into your team and have your project completed in no time. And honestly, I recommend Fiverr for things like graphic design, video editing, web design, audio editing. They have such talented freelancers. So stop wasting your time searching for talent. Just leave it to Fiverr Business. I used them so much when I was first starting my business. And their team of dedicated business success managers help match you with the best talent for your team. There's no more endless guessing or interviews. Plus, you can save and share your favorite freelancers for future projects. It's a simple way to set up your business for success and a big win for productivity and collaboration. Find the freelancers you need to give your next project the boost it needs to finish strong. Right now, you can sign up for Fiverr Business absolutely free for the first year. Get one year free and save 10% on your purchase on Fiverr Business with promo code YAP. Just go to fiverr.com slash business and don't forget promo code YAP. That's fiverr.com slash business and don't forget promo code YAP. This episode of YAP is brought to you by Gusto. If you're a small business owner, this is for you. Running a business is just plain hard. Endless to-do lists, employees to take care of, and your ever-present bottom line. So first of all, kudos to you for staying on top of it all. Gusto wasn't just built for small businesses. It was built for the people behind them. Their online payroll is so easy to use and they can automatically calculate paychecks and file all your payroll taxes, which means you have more time to run your business. Plus, Gusto does way more than just payroll. They can help with time tracking, health insurance, 401ks, onboarding, commuter benefits, offer letters, access to HR experts. You get the idea. They've got everything you need to help run your business. It's super easy to set up and get started. And if you're moving from another provider, they can help transfer all your data for you. 
At Yap Media, we're actually gearing up to start our HR benefits on Gusto. And this was the plan even before they sponsored me, because after doing my due diligence and research, I chose Gusto. They provide payroll, benefits, onboarding, HR all in one place. And the key is that it's at an affordable price. It's a budget that suits my growing startup. It's no surprise 94% of customers are likely to recommend Gusto. Here's the best part. Because you're a listener, you get three months completely free. All you got to do is go to gusto.com slash yap. Again, that's gusto, G-U-S-T-O dot com slash yap. I'm telling you, you're going to love gusto. Get started today. People are still, a lot of people are still working remotely. And I feel like it must be amazing for people's productivity because me, myself, I'm an entrepreneur now, but for, I was working at Disney streaming and there was almost a whole year I was working from home and I got a lot more sleep. I was able to exercise whenever I wanted. All of a sudden I could get my work done in six hours instead of eight and it didn't matter. So I feel like it's really good, this movement that we're doing for humanity overall in terms of our productivity. Yeah, I think COVID was fantastic for that. And one of the things that's really interesting, so this making time for your highest flow activity, the surfing in, in the Patagonia case, one of the things that we learned during COVID is the people who had the least amount of stress during COVID, the least amount of languishing during COVID, and, and the most flourishing then and now are the people who had the most flow in their lives during COVID. And it's really about, did you make time for this high flow activity in your life? Seems to be like, you know, not only did we learn really good habits, I think, working from home, but we also got to double down on that that high flow thing. And we saw that it made a real difference in people's lives. So one more thing on intrinsic motivation, and then we'll move on. You say that mastery is the thing that people tend to forget. Why is that? And why is mastery important? I don't think they tend to forget it. To me, it's the master motivator. So uh, while all the other ones are, are potent, I think mastery consistently over time provides the most reward and is the most sort of tied in with flow because walking the path to mastery is about kind of pushing on your skills a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more. And that's a a great recipe for a high flow lifestyle as well, where you're kind of stretching your skills over and over again. And that challenge skills balance we talked about last time we were together on uh, which is one of flow's most potent triggers so that is what allows you to walk the path to mastery and i i don't necessarily know if it's if people forget it i think people sometimes don't think mastery is possible for themselves so they don't push in that direction or they're impatient with mastery and it's sort of like i think passion and mastery people have the same issue with like when i think about I ask you to describe a kind of a a passionate, uh, give me an example of passion or mastery. You'll, you'll Serena Williams playing tennis or LeBron James playing basketball kind of thing. And and those things are true, but like that's late stage passion and late stage mastery. We forget what it looks like on the front end where it's just somebody learning how to play tennis for the first time. Somebody learning how to shoot a basketball for the first time. And that's what it looks like on the front end. And it doesn't matter where you are as far as you're walking the path to mastery. We just like getting better and better at the things we do. It produces a lot of dopamine and that drives us farther. Got it. So mastery is basically just continuing learning and wanting to continue to learn and learning new things. Is that what mastery is? Sorry, I'm just trying to be super clear about what that is. Yeah, I mean, mastery is literally defined as the desire to get better and better at the things that we do. 
That is literally what it is. It's nothing more or less. I want to get better at the stuff I do. Okay. So then next would be goal setting, the three levels of goals, and then grit. So why is goal setting important? And what are these three levels all about? So it's the same thing. Goals provide motivation. And if you want to maximize motivation, energy for action, you want more energy for action. Same reason, because the five intrinsic motivators and your extrinsic motivator, if you've done anything significant and hard in your life, you know you need all the fuel you can get. It, like Those are great fuel sources, but can you get more? Yes. How do you get more? You set proper goals. What are the three tiers? Human beings function best when we have mission-level goals. This is like purpose. I need a meaning and purpose in my life. Uh, higher goals. These are the multi-year steps that lead towards our purpose and then clear goals the daily action steps so for example i want to write great books that's a mission level goal a high art goal is i want to write a book called the art of impossible that's a middle level goal and a clear goal is i'm going to write 500 pages or 500 words in the book the art of impossible today clear goals are daily action plans what am i doing what am i doing next where do i put my attention how do i declare victory when it's over right i know if i write 500 words according to word count okay cool i'm done for today i can declare victory and once i declare victory i get a little bit more dopamine and thus more motivation and so you want much like you want all of your intrinsic motivators pointed in the same direction, you want your goals aligned with your intrinsic motivators. So everything is pointed in the same direction to maximize motivation. So in terms of your goal setting, do you recommend, uh, so there's three levels of goals. For your daily goals, when are you, how are you creating your daily goals? Is it the day before? Is it the day of? Is it in the morning? Like, how do you do it? I think everybody's got their own thing. And they're only doing it. I so clear goals is a flow trigger. Besides being a motivator, it's also a flow trigger. Flow follows focus, and clear goals tell us where to put our attention. This is what I'm focusing on now. This is what I'm focusing on next. My attention doesn't have to wander. I don't have to know. Also, clear goals, when you write a clear goals list, and writing by hand matters on this one, there's a relationship between hand movement and memory that is different than if you type. It's an evolution that we've just been writing by hand for longer. It seems to work better. So I don't just, I write it in a notebook, right? Like this is my clear goal list for the day right there. And so all I do is I like to write them the night before so that uh, when I get up to work at 4 a.m., I know exactly what I'm doing. I don't have to wonder. And when I design a clear goal list, there's a couple of rules I follow. One, you want to start your work session in accordance with your circadian rhythms, and then you want to start session with your hardest task. The reason is quite simply that willpower, right, burns out over the course of a day. It declines over time. You can replenish it a little bit, but it's never, you know, higher than at the beginning of your extreme lark like me at four o'clock in the morning. If you're my wife, it's eight o'clock at night, but whatever that is, you're never going to have more energy in this given workday. So I want to start my hardest task and my biggest win. My biggest win, meaning like if I got it done, it's the biggest win for the day. What does that mean? It's going to give me the most freaking dopamine. So the most motivation to go through all the items on other items on my to-do list. How many items go on my clear goal list, my to-do list? You have to run an experiment. How many things in a day can you do and be excellent at? And anything you do that's going to take energy. So if I got to walk my dog, that's going to take energy. So it's going to go on the list. If 
right? I want to do a gratitude practice. It's going to go on everything I do. If I need to have a conversation with my wife, it's going to go on the list. Everything I can do over the day that will take energy because that's what you're trying to do, preserve energy in a sense. Clear goals, emphasis on clear here, especially if you're talking to Western audiences, they hear clear goals and they're all about the goals and they like ignore the clear and actually from a cognitive load perspective and from a motivation perspective, emphasis on clarity. Your brain wants to know what, what am I doing? What am I doing now? What am I doing next? Not how do I declare victory? In fact, declaring victory often takes your focus off like where it should be to accomplish the goal. You start, you're thinking about this thing that's going to happen in the future when it's done. No, no, no. You want to focus on the clear. What am I doing right here, right now? So for example, most of the time I can write my clear goal. It'll say write 500 words in the new book, right? And that's what my goal list will say. But if I'm a little stuck, for example, right, it'll say write 500 words that make the reader feel excited or make the reader feel fear or whatever it is, right? Like I'll give it a little more clarity just so I know. And I like to set them, as I said, the night before because it prepares the container, the work container for the next day. And the most important thing about a clear goal list for peak performance is sustaining motivation. Check the shit off, right? You have to check it off by hand because that's literally your brain goes, oh, it's done. I can stop thinking about it. It lowers cognitive load, which produce, releases more energy that you can then spend right on your next task. Um, it also allows you to declare victory. And this is a real problem. You know this as an entrepreneur. When the f*** are you done working? Right? Like, when am I done? How do I know I'm done for the day? And if you don't know when you're done for the day, you can't shut off, you can't recover, and you end up burning out. I know I can be excellent at nine things in a day. Trying to do 10 or 11 is stupid because I literally can't be excellent at 10 or 11. I can't perform as a peak performer at those items, so I don't even try, right? That's an, it's an automatic no. If I wake up and there's more than nine things to do on my to-do list, I'm like, well, that's I can't do that and be great at this stuff. Something's got to give. So I got to move some stuff, right? That's like what has to happen. So I know how many items go on the list because I can be only excellent about nine things in a day. And I know what order they're going to go into because writing is the hardest thing I got to do every day. It's going to go first and so forth down my day. And that's sort of how I think about it. And I want the list done the night before. So... My cognitive load is already lessened. Like I want to export that out of my brain before I try to go to sleep because I don't want it weighing on my brain while thinking about this stuff. I want to know what I'm going to do tomorrow. So my brain's like, okay, I know what I can do. I can start focusing on that, not wondering about like, what do you have to do? You might have to call this person. You might have to, right? Yeah, I think honestly, guys, if you take one thing away from this episode, this is such a big life hack. The night before, write down the main things that you need to do the next day. It will stop all these loops going on in your head so you get better sleep and then you know what you got to do in the morning. <laughs> it's the hardest. It's so simple. It's so dumb. And it's so powerful. It's so unbelievably powerful. In fact, when we, we deal with a lot of really super stressed out C-suite executives, Fortune 500, I run up billion dollar company executives. And this is the first place when you're fighting burnout, this is step one. If you're trying to fight burnout, this is the very first thing you have to do to fight burnout. It gives you so much control of your life back. And it's such a dumb little, I'm going to write down a daily to-do list. Okay. That really? Yes, really.
you would get so much more ahead in life. I mean, I remember the moment when I started doing to-do list was the moment that my career like started to accelerate because when you don't do that, you're just a mess. It's amazing how far you get those like nine items at a time. There's the, that's how you go to impossible. And it's really hard to convince that people of that. I always tell people the hardest lesson to learn is that hard work works and it works one checklist at a time. And I can't, like, if I could convince people of that ahead of time, like before they did it, this would all be really, really easy. That's the hardest thing for people to believe. Yeah, that it could be that simple to make that much progress. So let's talk about grit, because you said grit is kind of your last resort. Why wouldn't just these intrinsic motivators be enough? Why is grit kind of the last piece of the puzzle there? Quite simply, because we have bad days, and because life is hard. Just in general, it's hard. And if you're trying to get someplace that's difficult to get to statistically, you know, odds are stacked against you. That makes it worse. You want more fuel sources. The fuel's going to run out. At some point, it's just going to run out. And then you want to reach for grit. Where I won't go through, there are six different kinds of grit that peak performers all need to train. There's the grit to control your thoughts. There's what we think of as persistence, the like, you know, I'm just going to keep coming, resilience. There's grit to negotiate with fear and a a bunch of others. The last one that I want to talk about that I think is worth mentioning is in peak performance, recovery is a grit skill. So the grit to recover, we need seven to eight hours of sleep a night. We should have an active recovery protocol in place, active recovery. Passive recovery is I worked really hard today. I'm going to go home, drink a beer and watch TV. And it doesn't work. It doesn't reset the body, especially if you're working really hard, right? And burning a lot of energy. You have to replenish motivation. You have to replenish willpower and television and beer. And I'm going to go to sleep isn't going to get it done. Active recovery is a sauna, an Epsom salt bath, a long walk in nature, restorative yoga, breath work. All these are active recovery practices. And one of the reasons you want to be able to clear victory over your day is so you know, okay, this is now I can shut down, right? I, now, I can, now I can relax. For peak performers, peak performers hate to shut it down. If you're a hard-charging type A, entrepreneurial artist type, you will never shut it down. Right? And you will absolutely burn out. So one of the great skills, and the, the other ones are how you train them, all that stuff's in the book, but the one that's less obvious is for peak performers, for our chargers, for entrepreneurs, grit recovery is a grit skill because you really have to. It is, you know, especially like I'm having a problem writing a book or I'm having a problem, you know, at the Flow Research Collective with a, with a science project or, you know what I mean? I don't want to stop. I want to like, I'll go all night, four or five days in a row and then I'll just collapse and be burned out. And that's good for nobody. And I can't perform my best. And like, you know, I don't do that anymore, but it like, I've learned now that like shutting it down saying, okay, I'm done for the day. This is all I can do. I'm done. That's hard. That takes practice. And it, what it, when I say it takes practice, you have to, what you have to learn is that you'll actually get farther over time by stopping and recovering than you will by trying to grit through it, right? That's the point. But you can't learn that again ahead of time. You have to go sort of go through it and then you're on the back end. You're like, oh, I get it. I get, I go farther faster with a lot less fuss, 
with an active recovery practice. Okay. So part of the grit, especially when you're super productive, especially when you're an entrepreneur, is prioritizing self-care and having the willpower to stop, even though you're so passionate about it and you want to do it to stop and recover and get sleep and all that kind of good stuff. Okay. So let's talk about learning. You say learning is what keeps you in the game. Talk to us more about the importance of learning. Young and profiters, we are all making money. But is your money hustling for you? Meaning, are you investing? Putting your savings in the bank is just doing you a total disservice. You got to beat inflation. I've been investing heavily for years. I've got an E-Trade account. I've got a Robinhood account. And it used to be such a pain to manage all of my accounts. I'd hop from platform to platform. I'd always forget my Fidelity password. And then I have to reset my password. I knew that needed to change because I need to keep track of all my stuff. Everything got better once I started using Yahoo Finance, the sponsor of today's episode. You can securely link up all of your investment accounts in Yahoo Finance for one unified view of your wealth. They've got stock analyst ratings. They have independent research. I can customize charts and choose what metrics I want to display for all my stocks so I can make the best decisions. I can even dig into financial statements and balance sheets of the companies that I'm curious about. Whether you're a seasoned investor or looking for that extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Young and profiters, Yap Media is growing so fast. I have 10 open roles just this month. In the past, it would take me so long to find hires. I have to go on all these different job sites. I have to create my own skills assessments. That's why I let Indeed do a lot of this heavy lifting for me. Indeed is the powerful hiring platform where I can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. Indeed has things like skills assessments, where when we have specific roles, we can find an assessment that matches that role and we can make sure they have the skills that we need. Then I can focus on culture fit. I can make sure they're scrappy enough and are obsessed with excellence and do all the things that we need to do for them to fit in at YAP. And Indeed streamlines hiring with powerful tools like Instant Match. An Instant Match basically matches you with candidates as soon as you put up a job post with people who are qualified right away. It's instant. And the best part is it gets better as you use it. So now when I use Indeed, especially when I'm hiring for similar roles, I get people right away where they know that I'm going to like the candidates because they can see what my preferences were in the past. It gets better as you use it. According to US Indeed data, the moment Indeed sponsors a job, over 80% of employers get candidates whose resumes are a perfect match for the position. It's like waving a magic wand that gets better as you use it. So I love using Indeed. We've found a lot of our A players on there. Join more than 3 million businesses worldwide who count on Indeed to hire their next superstar like we do at Yap Media. Start hiring now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at indeed.com slash profiting. Offer is good for a limited time. Claim your $75 sponsored job credit at indeed.com slash profiting. Again, that's indeed.com slash profiting and support the show by saying you heard about it on Young and Profiting Podcast. Again, it's indeed.com slash profiting to get your $75 credit. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Well, we walked the path, like you've gone through the intrinsic motivators, you got to mastery, right? The path to mastery requires skills acquisition and knowledge acquisition. 
So you have to, you want to continue to travel the path to mastery. You want to continue down a path of peak performance. That's the next thing in line. You have to learn to learn, learn how to learn. And learning is a, it's a, a few more meta skills that surround learning. So in the learning section, I've got a section on skills acquisition and a section on knowledge acquisition. I've also got a section on truth filters. Truth filters are things like the scientific method or I'm trained as a reporter. So there's a way we fact check, learn to fact check stories. Elon Musk, our philosophers will talk about first principle thinking. These are all truth filters. They're ways to, I need to learn to continue to walk the path of mastery for peak performance. How do I evaluate what I'm learning quickly? How do I know I can trust it? How do I know it's right? It's accurate, right? Because if you're learning from bad information, you're not getting anywhere. And so you've got to be able to assess that. And then there are questions of what material should I learn from? What, what are the best, what's the best thing to learn? Those things get sort of folded in under learning. But the really big point is you just, if you're interested in peak performance, you have to learn how to learn. I totally agree. I think learning is such an important skill. I thought it was really interesting when you talked about the ROI on reading books. I thought this was super interesting. I'd love for you to share that with my listeners. For sure. Great, great thing. So this is the question of learning materials. What should you learn from? And I always tell people that if you want the most bang for your buck, you want to be reading books. And here's why. You have to think about it from a what I'm trading my time for your knowledge, right? That's the exchange that's going on when you're trying to learn something. If you're learning, you're going to learn from, let's say, a blog versus a magazine article versus a book versus a podcast or a lecture, right? Those are the main things we're going to learn from. Think about it. I always like to express, think about it from a writer. I wrote a blog for four, for five years. I wrote a blog for Psychology Today for six years. Across the boards, every time I wrote a blog, I do about a day's worth of research and then spend a day writing the blog. And that's like four hours of research in the morning and then four hours of writing the next day. And then maybe I would kind of edit it a third day, right? So you got about 12 hours of my hard work in the blog and you can read an average blog. It's about 800 words average human being reads 250 words a minute. So you read my 800 word blog in like three to four minutes. So you give me four minutes or three minutes and I give you three days. That's the return on investment, the ROI for a blog. Now take a magazine article, like a a cover story I would do for Wired or something like that. On average, it's about 5,000 words long and it'll take you about 20 minutes to read average reading speed. So what do you get in exchange for the 20 minutes, right? You got three days for about four minutes. What do you get for 20 minutes? Well, average magazine article, it would take me about a month of research before I found the story, three to four months worth of research to report the story, another three months to write the story, then another couple of months to work with my editors and polish the story. You'd not just get my brain on it, but you'd get all the other researchers I would call and my editor's brain and the editor-in-chief's brain. And so you give me 20 minutes and suddenly you're getting nine months of my life and a bunch more brain power. Wow, that's a better trade, right? That's a much better return on investment. You're getting so many more facts in your head uh, that you're learning from. Books are even crazier. So take, uh, take The Art of Impossible. The Art of Impossible is, I think it was, 
80,000 word, words long or so. It'll take the average person about eight hours to read, let's say. That's probably a little under, maybe it's eight and a half, nine. What do you get in exchange? Well, that book is built on 30 years of research into the neurobiology of peak performance. Everything I've learned over the past 30 years has been folded into that. And all the scientists I've worked with, you know, as a journalist running the flow research, collected the 70 people who are on staff with me, who work with me, right? You, it's a lot of collective firepower. So yes, you give me eight to nine hours of your life, but you're getting 30 years in exchange. And the point is on books is they're the most information dense learning source on the planet you can't you can't beat that value and a lot of people want to listen to podcasts and a lot of people want to go to lectures and i i give lectures i have a podcast i appear on podcasts and i can tell you that the information density in podcasts in lectures is nowhere close to what books are it's not like it's not you're you're not not even in the vicinity I'm not saying you can't learn from these other sources, but if you're looking for the maximum bang for your buck, if you're busy and you only have X amount of time, books are the tool to reach for. Again, it's like you you think you would like realize this, but when you actually say it, you realize that, wow, books really are somebody's heart and soul that they've probably researched for years and years. For me, I won't even interview somebody who doesn't have a book because I'm like, they don't have a perspective. They don't have enough to talk about. I don't know what I would even talk to them about because I can't go deep enough. So I thought that was super interesting. So moving on to creativity. Creativity is something we can't see. And I feel like people don't really know what it means. So can you explain to us what creativity means in your opinion? So there's one sort of across the board standard scientific definition of creativity. A lot of people, they'll mutate it and like you'll see 70,000 slightly different versions, but it always comes down to the creation of novel ideas that are useful. And the useful part is what, really distinguishes sort of creativity from imagination. If it's just novel ideas, I'm thinking of something cool and it's neat, that's imagination. Once it's useful for other people in any way, shape, or form, that's creativity. Creativity is defined as the creation of novel ideas that are useful. So it's just novelty. If it's just a novel idea, that's just imagination. That's not creativity. Once it becomes useful, and useful can mean I see a beautiful painting and have an aesthetic experience, right? That can be useful as well. Then you're moving into creativity. So that's it's nothing more or less than that. And is there a way to kind of hack that state of creativity? Or, or Yeah, that's, I mean, so this is a lot of the work that's happened in neurobiology. The neuroscience of creativity has really exploded over the five past five to 10 years. And we have a really good understanding of how creativity works in the brain and how to get yourself to be more creative. And it's, give you a simple, it's not what you think it is. Well, I'll give you a simple example. We talked earlier about the importance of staying calm for peak performance. One of the reasons is the more anxiety in your system, the less creative you're going to be. And the reason is quite simply that when you're anxious or scared, the brain wants logical, linear, safe, tried and true solutions. So the more anxiety, the more logical, the fewer choices we get to make. The extreme example is extreme danger. And the brain says, okay, there's a tiger in front of you. You have two options. You can fight 
or you can flee. You actually can freeze. There's three options, but doesn't want to give you a lot of choices. This is here are three options. Well, what people don't realize is just a little bit of anxiety will do the same thing. You don't get three, but maybe you'll only get 10. And when we're calm, brain goes, oh, let's consider all solutions. Let's think outside the box. There's no threat to your life, so I can be a little wackier. That is one way to stimulate creativity. There are ways to like, we know that when you look at the corners of your eyes and use your peripheral vision, this activates the parasympathetic nervous system and calms you down. So looking out the corner of your eyes will make you more creative. What does that mean? I'll give you an example. When I'm writing in the morning and I get stuck, I walk outside and I, I live in Tahoe so I can like look out and see the Sierras. Um, and when they're not all on fire, <laughs> it's a huge wide vista. And I just like look at the whole of the mountain range and come back in more creative than I went outside. So I was stuck, I go outside and I can use, so what, what's happening is we're starting to understand how creativity works in the brain. So now it's not this big, weird, amorphous, you know, what is this thing? How do we do it? And the, the thing is you have to practice parts of creativity. There's skills involved in a lot of creativity, but it, it tends to be, it's a way of thinking about what you're doing, right? We're now starting to understand kind of the mechanism underneath that way of thinking. And that's a lot of sort of what I, what I cover in uh, The Art Impossible is like ways to tune the brain for more creativity. That's super fascinating. So last pillar is flow. How does this all tie back to flow? So it all ties back to flow, first of all, because if you, you want more flow in your life, you have to stabilize all this stuff, right? It's not just enough to get more flow in your life, but... As I said at the beginning, motivation gets us into the peak performance game. Learning allows us to keep on playing. Creativity is how we steer, especially if we're going through those impossible goals, right? Like, how do I get there? Where is it exactly? Right? Creativity is how we steer towards these impossible goals. So when you say that, like, creativity helps you creatively problem solve towards your goal, is that what you mean by yeah, steer? Yeah, I mean, that's, okay. that's exactly what creativity, when we break it apart, it's dozens of different subcomponents from problem identification right? What exactly is this thing that I'm trying to solve, right? That's, entrepreneurs spend years on that particular one. Like, what is it exactly the challenge that I'm all the way up to like idea execution? Those are all aspects of creativity and creative decision-making, creative problem solving. So there's a lot of subcomponents that feed into it. And flow uh, just allows us, flow amplifies, first of all, it amplifies learning, it amplifies motivation, it amplifies grit, it amplifies creativity so it boosts all of these skills at once and so in a sense motivation gets into the game learning allows us to continue to play creativity is how we steer and flow is how we turbo boost the results beyond sort of our reasonable expectation and as you know kind of from the last podcast we did together it's a pretty flows a big boost in a lot of different skills so it, it is a massive amplification and that's to me how they that's how they tie together it's one system is the real point right this is one entire system it's designed to work in an order in a certain way and you know you get in the right order you can get more flow going to get farther faster you're going to get the results you want 
Okay, so everybody, I want you to go grab that book, The Art of Impossible. Like we just said, reading books is your best ROI on your time if you want to learn. And the last question I ask all my guests, Stephen, is what is your secret to profiting in life? It's not a fair question because the secret is everything I put in Art of Impossible. People are <laughs> always like, what do you do? I just, this is what I do. This is what every the Flow Research Collective does. This is the biology. Like, I don't know if there's any secret beyond that. I will, uh, I will, I'll, I'll end with, I'll give you one thought. I was, I think I outread most people, the whole office's books. I wasn't a great student. I wasn't super smart, but I never stopped reading and I'll read 150 books a year kind of thing. And I've done that for a very, very, very long time. And it's amazing how far you can get by out reading people. Can I ask you a question? Is the audiobook version just as good as reading the actual words? Interesting question. It's a it's a tricky question. So I my my gut ins my flash response is no, and I'll, let me tell you why. It's because most people when they listen to the audio stuff don't pause the audio stuff to think about things. They're trying to keep up with the speaker. If you were to pause it, because that's what books really give you. It's not just that you're getting, you're getting the same information density in both, but in books, you can pause and you can think. And for a bunch of reasons that have to do with how the brain learns and, you know, other stuff that I talk about in Not Impossible about kind of learning, I think for that reason, books are primary. Now, that said, if you are not a visual learner, if you are not really word-centric if you're an audio learner there are probably going to be a lot of exceptions to what i just said so i don't know the problem with what i just said is i don't know if it's just true for me or if it's true for everyone and i try to like when i try to like make statements about peak performance i like things to be based on biology because they, they work for everybody that one i can't quite tell as a general rule books are going to work better than an audiobook. But if you do actually take the time to pause and really think about those things, especially if you take notes when you kind of listen to the audiobook, then I don't, I don't know if one can be better than the other. Then I can't answer your question and I, I'd have to see studies. That goes back to what you said in your book, like personality doesn't scale, biology scales, right? So that could be a personality thing. Okay, so where can our listeners go to learn more about you and everything that you do? Flowresearchcollective.com is... is Everything from if you're interested in flow trainings, if you're just interested in more about flow and peak performance, um, if you want to know more about me, stephencotler.com and all over social media. Awesome. Well, thank you, Steve, for joining us again. You are one of my favorite interviews. I'd love to have you back on every time you have a new book and something new to say. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thanks for your interest. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Young and Profiting Podcast. If you enjoyed this show, make sure you take a few minutes right now to drop us a five-star review. It's the number one way to thank me and the team at Yap. What an amazing conversation with Steven. I always learn so much when he comes on the show and I really enjoyed talking about his new book, The Art of Impossible and all of its amazing takeaways. I was so intrigued about the difference between impossible and how there's a lowercase I impossible and an uppercase I impossible and how we do impossible things every day. 
Overcoming our everyday adversities, dealing with trauma, sticking to our goals and motivations, that is small I impossible. Achieving the impossible is so much closer than we think. Our brain is hardwired with the biology to help us achieve both big I and small I impossible. It's working for us to reach those new heights. And we all have the capability to achieve the impossible, whether it be a personal struggle or a bigger goal for the greater good. Stephen told us that his personal pillars on how to maintain peak performance to achieve our own impossible are motivation, learning, creativity, and flow. Setting clear motivation is the first key to getting to where you want to go, whether you use internal motivators or external ones. The why behind your goal setting is so imperative. In order to level up and become a master at our own peak performance, we have to constantly be acquiring new skills and knowledge and learning. It may sound simple, but learning to learn is a key pillar in being able to master a skill, reach peak performance, and ultimately unlock our creative potential. All of these lead back to flow, being able to reach that state of extreme focus and peak performance to achieve our goals. The biggest takeaway from me for this conversation was that we are all capable of achieving the impossible. So many things in our day-to-day lives may think like an insurmountable peak we can never conquer, but if we put the word impossible into perspective, there are many different types of impossible, and we can see that we've actually done many impossible things in our lives, and we're going to keep doing impossible things over and over and over again. In my personal journey, there's been so many times where I felt like I couldn't overcome something impossible, like trauma, grief, different adversities, different rejections, but I did overcome them, and I'm sure you have too. My talk with Steven gave us so many tricks and tips on how we can hardwire our brains to achieve the impossible. And I hope you learned as much as I did from this amazing interview. Thanks again to Steven Kotler. And if you enjoyed this episode and you want to hear more from Steven, go check out my first interview with him on Yap number 32, Flow Into the Future. So uh, the best place to start is not with my definition of flow. It's with the technical definition of flow, the, the scientific definition of flow, which is an optimal state of consciousness where we feel our best and we perform our best. And as you pointed out, my definition is, is very similar to what you just said. It's a moment. It's those moments of kind of rapt attention and total absorption. We get so focused on the task at hand that everything else disappears. So action awareness will start to merge your sense of self self-consciousness, self-criticism will vanish completely. Time passes strangely. The technical term is it dilates, which is a fancy way of saying it either slows down, you get a freeze frame effect from your enemy who's been in a car crash, or more frequently it speeds up and five hours go by in five minutes, you didn't even notice time was passing. And throughout, as you pointed out, all aspects of performance, both mental and physical, go through the roof. Again, if you like this episode and want to learn more about flow specifically, go check out Stephen's first appearance on Yap, episode number 32, Flow Into the Future. Now, I'd like to move on and shout out one of my latest podcast reviewers, and I'm super grateful for everybody who has left us a review on Apple Podcasts. This one is from Panna Amliwala. Thank you. I just listened to episode number 138 with Stephanie Malik, and wow, amazing. Some really interesting points were raised that I can relate to in my own life. I now have a better understanding of how I can deal with these issues. Thank you so much and keep up the good work. Wow, thank you so much for that review and taking the time out to write it. And I totally agree. That episode number 138 with Stephanie Malik, Spin It, Get Out of a Crisis, was such a great episode. What an amazing conversation. And if you guys are listening, check that out. You won't be disappointed. And if you're tuning in still, I want a five-star review from you. 
You know you love the show. Take the time out to tell us. I love to read your feedback. It is really important for us to get these reviews. And if you do enjoy the show, you can also share us on social media. You can find me on Instagram at yapwithhala or LinkedIn. Just search for my name. It's Hala Taha. Big thanks to the Yap team. As always, I love you guys. I couldn't do this without you. This is Hala signing off. 